Good morning. I want to express my gratitude to the session and to Pastor Jeremiah for this opportunity to open God's Word and bring God's Word to you this morning. Let me say to Patrick, who's handling technical affairs, since I ended up with a mic for a children's message, I'll go ahead and use the lavalier uh, for the sermon as well. Before we read from Malachi 4, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our great God and Savior, it is our prayer this morning from your word that may the meditations, the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, we do find ourselves this morning in Malachi chapter 4, a rather short chapter of six verses. So I'm going to read those verses to you now. Hear now the word of God. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb, for all Israel. Let me interject, Horeb is another name for Mount Sinai. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. The word day in Hebrew is yom, like Yom Kippur. And it can have a variety of distinct meanings. It can refer to the period of daylight as opposed to darkness, or to a typical 24-hour day, or to a particular event, or an era as when we older folks say to our grandchildren, well in my day. Now, these six verses set before us in Malachi 4 focus on a particular day that we will find is of tremendous significance in both the Old and New Testaments and indeed to the entire world. God himself declares in, Matthew, in Malachi 4, 6 that it will be the great 
and awesome day of the Lord. You may note in your Bibles, Lord, there is in all caps, signifying that God is using at that point his most personal name in the Hebrew, Yahweh. So let's use this key event to organize our thoughts as we cover these verses, which not only conclude Malachi, but the entire Old Testament, the way our English Bibles are arranged, as well as this sermon series, which Pastor Jeremiah has entrusted to me to attempt to accomplish. Let's look first at the profound meaning of the day of the Lord. From the very beginning, God's word makes it clear that he reigns over history as creator, as ruler, as judge, and as savior. We see this in Genesis 3, where the Lord rebukes the devil for his role in Adam and Eve's fall. I'm going to read to you a couple of verses out of Genesis 3, verses 14 and 15. The Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The promise that God would use the offspring, the Hebrew says the seed of Adam and Eve, to bring about Satan's defeat, and also the salvation of God's people, was partially fulfilled in Christ's incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection. And it will be completed in his second coming, as we shall see. Now, while not understanding all the amazing details, God's people in the Old Testament era looked forward intensely to both the fullness of the salvation that God had promised them and to the final judgment of the wicked. So we find that by the time the Lord had sent the prophet Amos to the northern kingdom of Israel around 732 BC, the phrase, the day of the Lord, was frequently used with this significance, though often with much ignorance as well. Let me read to you just a verse out of Amos, Amos 5, 18. Woe to you, said the prophet, who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. We don't have time to go into all of that, but he was rebuking them for using this phrase with a great deal of ignorance. These people, the people apparently used it with the view that divine judgment would only fall on God's, or Israel's, enemies, would only fall on Israel's enemies. Now, as we've seen over and over in this series on homecoming and heart checks covering Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi, 
the Jewish people tended to rely on their status as the children of Abraham, as God's chosen people. And they either excused blatant sins such as intermarriage with pagans or withholding the tithe that God deserves, or they congratulated themselves on their outward piety or piety while they while practicing pride and lack of forgiveness. When you think about it, not so different from many folks who call themselves Christians today. So the common understanding of the day of the Lord in the Old Testament era, as well as among the Jews of Jesus' day here on earth, was that when this great moment came, the Jewish people would be restored to their rightful place as the dominant nation on earth, politically, militarily, socially, and spiritually. That they would forever enjoy the fullness of God's blessing and that all unbelievers would be subjugated or destroyed. However, the truth recorded in Scripture is far more humbling for God's people and yet far more glorious as well as far more terrifying for God's enemies than anything mere man could imagine. Let me turn to another of the prophets, Joel, in chapter 2, verses 20 through 30, the first part of 32. And this will be somewhat familiar because you'll realize part of it is used in the book of Acts. And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now let's look specifically at the significance of the day of the Lord for believers. I began by indicating that God has a cosmic plan for history and that the term the day of the Lord refers to the culmination of that plan. Yet though Malachi is generally considered to have been the final prophet of the Old Testament era, neither he nor other believers at this point realized that God was using him to set the stage for two very unexpected occurrences. First, the ministry of Malachi would be followed by an interlude of no more divine revelation that would last over four centuries. And then, second, that the subsequent arrival of the day of the Lord at the conclusion of that interlude would actually come in two distinct stages. You see, the initial fulfillment of the long-promised day of the Lord came with the arrival of the incarnate Son of God, 
the one and only Savior of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ, whose wondrous birth we will soon be celebrating in the season of Christmas. It is his first advent or coming, his life of perfect obedience to God's law, and his atoning death for our sins that make it possible for God the Father to justly cancel his record of our transgressions and declare all who are trusting in Jesus Christ not guilty of our sins. And in fact, if you dig into the teachings found in the New Testament, declare us to be righteous in his sight. Just to summarize that, let's turn to Romans chapter 3. Read a few verses there, verses 19 through 26, that summarize what I've just been saying. Romans 3, beginning with verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, read good works, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So because of those great promises, because of that great redemption Christ has provided, we who trust in him may rejoice in his presence forever. Also, God used Malachi to describe the herald or messenger that he would use to prepare the way for the arrival of Jesus. Our Lord's earthly cousin, and Jeremiah told me he's going to talk about this during the season of Advent, our Lord's earthly cousin, John the Baptist. Let's turn back to Malachi, first to Malachi chapter 3, the opening verses, Malachi 3, 1 and 2. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? 
for he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. Then turn over to our text for this morning, chapter 4, verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now this might seem confusing at first, but God did not mean that he was going to resurrect Elijah. Instead, that he would send another spokesman cut out of the same cloth as Elijah, preaching a message of divine judgment and calling the people to repentance for their failure to obey God's law that had been given through Moses. Christ himself confirmed this identification of John the Baptist with the promised return of Elijah if you look in Matthew eleven fourteen. But as pivotal and essential as was everything Christ accomplished in his first coming, he did not bring about the end of history with the last judgment or the new heavens and new earth as described in the closing chapters of the book of the Revelation. As the New Testament makes clear, those apocalyptic events will occur with our Lord's return in his second coming, which the New Testament often refers to as the day of Christ Jesus. For example, in Philippians 1.6. Now I told you earlier that the Hebrew word for day, yom, can encompass more than a single 24-hour period or event. It can be used to describe an entire life or an era, such as in the day of King David. Scholars refer to the times when more than one related events are initially described in prophecy as if they were one single event as prophetic foreshortening. Prophetic foreshortening. An example would be found in Isaiah's prophecy concerning the coming of Christ recorded in Isaiah 11. While at first it might seem to be describing a concise sequence of events in the life of Christ, they will in fact only be accomplished in a span of over 2,000 years, the entire New Testament era. Compare driving to Bonclarkin, or if you've never had that opportunity, to some other beloved destination in the Blue Ridge Mountains. As you're headed up I-26, your first glimpse of those peaks far in the distance might seem to indicate that there's simply one convoluted mass. But as you get closer, only then can you grasp that they are actually consist of rows upon rows of successive ridge lines. 
So it is with the details of the first and second comings of Christ that comprise the promised day of the Lord. They initially seem in Scripture to describe one cataclysmic event. But then we come to realize that these prophecies reveal what will happen in two momentous stages with all the centuries in between referred to as the last days according to the Apostle Peter if you look in 1st Peter 1 1st Peter 3 chapter 1st uh, Peter 3 verse 1 the Apostle John even describes this period between the first and second coming as the last hour if you look in 1st John 2 18 no wonder Peter reminds us in 2 Peter 3 verse 8 that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. We who live after the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus know that the Son of Righteousness has indeed risen with healing in his wings for our deepest needs, both physical and spiritual. As Malachi prophesied in our text, chapter 4, verse 2, using the image of the sun, S-U-N, beaming down, but fulfilled in the person of the sun, S-O-N, of course. And one day, in our resurrection bodies, if not before, we will leap as calves released from their pens, and frolicking in the sun to celebrate the goodness of God as he also describes there in verse 2. And those who by God's grace have truly repented of their sins and who have been reconciled to God through faith in his Son will also experience reconciliation to each other in Christ which Malachi describes in verse 6 of our text. And we understand that the message of Malachi and all the prophets agrees with the Apostle Peter who declared in 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 17 For it, for, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? So finally then, let's consider the significance of the day of the Lord for every unbeliever. While Malachi brought a message of encouragement for the believers of his day that the Lord still considered them his treasured possession you find in chapter 3 verse 17 upon whom he had set his saving love his message through every biblical prophet was the same for all who did not truly love the Lord and honor him with trusting obedience and that message was repent Matthew 3.1 tells us John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. 
Our Lord proclaimed in Luke 13, 5, No, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, repentance means to have a change of heart, resulting in a change of direction in one's life. It does not mean to solve your own problems, to clean up your act so that you will then be presentable to God. It means to cast yourself on His mercy in true sorrow for your sin. And by trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, to receive God's total forgiveness. And thus to find the power of His indwelling Holy Spirit to make changes in your life which are pleasing to Him. But woe, woe to those who ignore these calls to repentance. These calls to trust and believe in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. Those who die in their state of sin and rebellion face God's just and unending wrath in hell. Let's turn, for example, to Hebrews chapter 10. I'll read verses 26 through 31. Hebrews 10, beginning with 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment, do you think, will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the, the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And when Jesus returns at the end of history and defeats Satan and his forces forever, at the last judgment after the general resurrection, all unbelievers, the Bible says, will be cast in the lake of fire along with Satan forever. Read that account as well in Revelation 20, beginning with verse 10. Revelation 20, beginning with verse 10. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. 
And from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. Don't you know people who think that's what's going to work for them? That their good deeds are going to outweigh the bad? And here scripture is telling us at that last judgment, each person will be evaluated by their works and it will come up quite insufficient. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So what was the one thing that will matter? You need to know that the book of life, if you look over in Revelation uh, 13.8, is called the Lamb's book of life. In other words, those belonging to Jesus. And it is only those belonging to Jesus whose names are listed as one of his. One for whom he died. One for whom he paid for their sins. Only those will be spared what their life, their sinful life, deserves. This is what Malachi was warning back in his text. In verse 1 and verse 6. Concerning the coming day that would consume all the arrogant and evildoers. As stubble would be consumed in an oven. Or an earth baked dry and subject to wildfire. All those he describes at the end of verse 6 as being under God's curse. Do you remember what Hebrews 12.29 says? It states, for our God is a consuming fire. So let me ask you this morning, do you yearn for the day of the Lord as that event that will bring all the fullness of the gift of salvation that Christ purchased for you on the cross, the glories of the new heaven and the new earth to live in the presence of the Lord, our bridegroom, Jesus Christ, forever. Do you yearn for that? For his coming? Do you pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus, as we find in the New Testament? Or does hearing about the day of the Lord fill you with dread at the thought of your sins being fully exposed and you then receiving the eternal punishment they so richly deserve. Do you see why the Apostle Paul declared to his hearers, now is the day of salvation. Now is your opportunity to respond to what God has done in history. 
to bring about the salvation of his people, all who trust in Jesus Christ, all who admit their sin and their need, not only for his forgiveness, but his grace every moment of our lives. Don't ignore this opportunity to know for a fact that you belong to Christ forever by placing your trust in him now. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, how we thank you for the truth and the clarity and the power of your word which sets before us that which cannot be denied that you are the Lord of all our maker and our judge and that we are accountable to you for everything we think, say and do and that we should as your creatures depend on you and honor you and love you with all of our heart and yet every one of us falls short Oh Lord, how I pray this morning that by your grace, each one here would be one who has openly confessed to you, who has already admitted and continues to admit their sinfulness, how unworthy we are. But at the same time, I pray each one here has already, in admitting their sin, cried out to you and asked you to, in fact, come into their heart, Lord Jesus to sit on the throne of their heart and life and rule them and bless them and use them to your glory. That we might then yearn for your return, O Lord, to see you face to face. That evil would be vanquished, vanquished forever. And there would only be peace and joy and love and the glory of your presence and the honor of serving you, and even being co-rulers, your word teaches, with you. Oh, Lord God, may we truly, truly love you with all of our heart. And if anyone still fears that day, your return, Lord, I pray that you would enable them to face their need their pride, the falsehood of feeling they are self-sufficient and worthy. And again, that they would cast themselves upon your mercy and claim your promises. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.